0: Yeah, I tell you what, what would make life easier for me tomorrow is if I could just go into the back room and 3D print me a set of new teeth. Uh, I'd be down for that.
1: What's the teeth thing going on? You got
2: a toothache lately? Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life.
3: at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men.
1: Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and personalities to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we do have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here at AOC and get some stuff we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you like what you hear on the show, come hang out with us on the blog. We get really in-depth on these topics and you can engage with the AOC team there as well. Or if you're new to the show and you wanna find out more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, you can go to the website. We'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, dating, attraction, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. We've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world. That shows us that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. We're sold out a couple months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch ASAP by phone or email. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with Steven Cutler. he's been on the show before, he's the author of The Rise of Superman and he's written a book called Tomorrowland where we talk about a lot of crazy, all over the place type stuff. It's a little bit of an off topic episode, which is why it's a bonus. Things like human bionics, the science of mind uploading. In other words, uploading your memories. If you've seen Black Mirror, it'll be kind of like that in the future. Kind of nuts. Future of evolution, genetic engineering, vision implants. Everything from future of food to the future of... You can print your own teeth, damn it. So check out this episode with Stephen Kotler. So the last time we spoke, it was about the rise of Superman and, and a little bit about the Flow Genome Project. What What's the latest on that? Because obviously that's fascinating for anybody who wants to perform at a high level. Everybody wants that to be the next magic pill for us to get more shit done in more epic ways.
4: So everything's rolling along with the Flow Genome Project. Uh, we've been doing tons and tons of, of, of trainings, both kind of online and in person trainings. And uh we're raising uh seed capital right now for uh the first Flow Dojo, the world's first flow training and research facility, and we're hoping that'll be done within a year or so. So the Flow Genome Project is moving along.
1: That's so great. I mean, you've been writing about flow and future and I wanna get on into both of these topics here as but as much as we can sort of mesh them together coherently, but is flow something that's involving some of the new technology that you've been writing about? Or is this simply, I use the word simply, uh, loosely here. Is it simply psychological technology?
4: There's two answers to your question. One is, you know, I look at my career as I, I work on disruptive technology, right? Sometimes it's external technologies, things that are in the world, synthetic biology, genetics, that sort of stuff. And sometimes it's internal technologies like flow, right? And so to me, I'm looking at the same thing. And they, of course, cross over. One of the reasons that the Flow Genome Project can exist is a lot of measurement tools have come out of the Smart Health Revolution. The kind of exponential growth in neuroscience and biotechnology. Biotechnology, if you want to talk about it, kind of accelerating technology, is now moving at five times the speed of Moore's Law. So it's doubling in power about every four months, right? Along the way, we're getting all kinds of great imaging technologies and things that allow us to peer into the brain, kind of during moments of flow, during moments of ultimate performance and figure out what's going on for the first time. And once we get that information, we can very easily work back to, hey, what are the triggers? How do we produce this? And how do we get more of this in our lives? So yeah, it's absolutely kind of dovetailing and crossing over. And I see the Flow Genome Project as sort of in both camps.
1: That's super cool. And I, I love the fact that you're kind of peering into the future on all this technology. And I guess for me, one of the things that I'm most curious about is who's doing most of this futuristic research and where does it sort of skew? I know that as Americans, we're sort of heavily researching things like drugs, medicine to in health. How much are we putting into the health end and versus how much are we putting into like the weapons and sort of military industrial stuff?
4: I am not an expert on the weapons and the military industrial stuff. I'm really not. But I will say, you know, if you want a pretty good look at what's going on in the cutting edge, see what DARPA is funding, right? The big think, you know, the research arm of the defense department, they are definitely out there on the cutting edge. And they're a pretty good kind of bellwether for what that looks like. And, you know, what's realistic because they're always putting out calls for proposals, which means, hey, we think this is real. We want to give scientists money to develop this. Right. So it's a really good look at, you know, where we think, you know, we are right at this moment.
1: Well, what are you most excited about? I mean, that's probably a good place to start with the most
4: background on this. What are you most stoked on? So the two things, let's start with bionics because bionics is really exciting to me and and, kind of let me kind of tell you why because you know my interest isn't just hey science fiction is becoming science fact that's obviously fascinating that's kind of what shaped this book tomorrowland but i'm really interested in what happens to culture right that that the massively transformative effect this stuff is having on culture and bionics is a great example when i the the piece that's in tomorrowland right i went and hung out with david major rosell he's the world's first bionic soldier So he's got an absolute bionic ankle. And just to like put it in perspective, when we were hanging out, we were in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and it was a cold winter day and it was raining. There was snow on the ground, but it was raining. And we're walking around and we're talking. We come to a four lane, basically highway, not highway, but four lanes of traffic. And we're lost in conversation and, and Major Roselle is talking. And we come to this traffic intersection. And, you know, me, the able-bodied guy stops because that's what you do. Major David Rizal just like sees the four lanes of traffic, jumps across the first lane, freezes, darts left, darts right, jumps across another car, freezes, does the same thing, jumps over a snowbank and onto the far side. So when I say we've got real life bionic ankles, he went full on Walter Payton across this road on a bionic ankle. We have real life bionic ankles. Now that was a handful of years ago today, right now. 50% of the human body is replaceable by bionics. That is startling. That's an astounding, astounding fact. We've got mind-brain interfaces, so you can, you know, quadriplegics, paraplegics can move their real-life bionic limbs just by thinking about them. But where this stuff gets really interesting to me is where it kind of impacts all of our lives. So next year, 2016, is when we're going to start seeing the first bionic Exoskeletons. These are like strap on bionic braces. You got a bum knee. You can strap on a bionic brace. And what a bionic brace does, an exoskeleton does is it puts energy back into the system. So if you think about it, as we walk forward, right, we're constantly taking energy from gravity and using and turning it into momentum. And, and right there, it's this cycle and it allows us to move. If you can't do this, you get exhausted when you walk, right? Which is, which is sort of what happens with prosthetics. Limbs and it's the difference between prosthetics and bionics. Strap on bionics means anybody who's got a bum leg can now, you know, it's literally like strap on revitality. And where this gets really interesting is if you think about old age, right? The number one complaint in old age is decrepitude. It's I lose control of my body. I can't do what I want to do. The reason the retirement age is 65 years old. One is death rate. Two is that's when we start to lose a lot of mobility. We are about to have the largest generation in the history of the world retire in America and they're retiring because they're losing control of their body. And that's about to go away. Me as a, you know, as a 48 year old athlete, I care about this stuff because it's going to allow me to go longer. And me as a citizen of the world, Wow, this is going to change the entire economic structure and how long people work and all that stuff. I care about that stuff as well.
0: So how long do you think it's going to be before this stuff gets into the mainstream where it's affordable for just the everyday person? Because I'm a 43 year old programmer and I definitely would like a little extra juice. Well, see, that's what's so interesting about this stuff.
4: Cause there's two things on this. One, all this stuff is progressing exponentially, right? So when you say it's, you know, doubling in power for the same price every four months, that basically means it's getting more powerful and cheaper at the same time, right? So this stuff is becoming very affordable. And what we're seeing with the military and bionic limbs right now, they've discovered that, and I, I, I don't have them. The numbers are in the book. I don't have them on the top of my head. But they're saving so much money giving soldiers bionic limbs. These, I think these things are about $80,000, maybe a little bit more. But they end up over the life of the limb saving so much money because people can get up. They can go back to work. People who lose limbs and things like that, they tend to gain massive amounts of weight because they're much more sedentary, et cetera, et cetera. So it addresses so many problems, the VA is already paying for these things. So they're already, one way or another, affordable to the common man.
1: Excellent, so that's really cool. I I mean, it seems like it's cheaper to replace parts of people that are simply mechanical in nature than to try to find somebody and retrain them to do a job, and in this case,
4: especially manual labor. Right. What you're seeing in the military at this point is soldiers with bionic limbs are getting sent back to their command. They're getting sent back to combat, right? It's, it's exactly what you're talking about.
0: Now,
1: in terms of replacing these parts, are they mostly joints? I mean, I'm imagining bionic stuff like, you know, I think hook hand or nice bionic ankle or a knee
4: or even the leg. Some of it I believe they're stretching the term. Because I think on a certain level, you know, we can now. uh, This was as of I think last week. We can regrow teeth from stem cells.
0: Oh, I'm so in for that one. Please,
4: we're getting closer to eyes, right? So, like, we've already grown several, you know, major organs in, in laboratories as well. So that stuff is coming online. You know, the line between biology and technology, right, is getting. Thinner and thinner and thinner, I guess. So where you're drawing this line, what you're calling what these days is a little tricky to parse, but it's coming. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm always hesitant to make predictions because it's the easiest way to be wrong. Right. (laughs) Just judging from where we are, how many companies there are, how much money is, is moving in these directions and, you know, the exponential growth curve, I think we're going to start seeing major impacts with this stuff. Within the next 10 years. You know, you want to talk about Aubrey de Grey and the longevity stuff, and that's a much more radically far out timetable. Sure. But this stuff here now, deployable now, hitting the market 2016, already affordable.
1: I just want to know, you know, how much crap I'm going to have to replace on Jason as he ages so that we can maintain him as a producer.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I need some new ears first.
4: <laughs> I, I, you know, myself, I've broken over 80 bones so I need this stuff, Yeah, I know You know, it's coming and I'm gonna need it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, it, you know, one of the things I found super interesting in, in the book and in some of the articles you've written that I've seen elsewhere is mind uploading. Jason, have you heard about this, mind uploading? It's like ridiculous.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was reading about it in his book today, it's pretty fantastic stuff, if, uh, I mean, the, the beginnings are, are the interesting part. Uh, can you talk about that, like how it's like just the, the first version of taking like a chip in the head and going from there?
4: Yeah. Well, so first of all, let's put some context around it, right? Mind uploading, which is, it's the idea of storing self on silicon, basically uploading part of your consciousness, your personality, something onto a computer and preserving it forever, right? And it is by far, I think the most far out concept in the book, except that the reason it's in the book is back in 2000, British telecom, right? The largest telecom in Britain, that big research arm, Put a researcher on this project and he had a very scaled down version of it where he decided that he could record all the inputs from the senses, so the big five senses, and then with a powerful enough computer, basically the kinds that are coming online today, actually, he could, you know, run a pattern recognition s- system and then he just needs a playback device in his mind to recreate conscious experience. Now, nobody knows if this would actually work, but here's the thing. When he started the project, we could already record all the inputs from our senses. That was already feasible back then, which is why he started the project. He knew, because of Moore's Law, that the computers are gonna get powerful enough to kind of create the information processing bit in the middle, and we're probably, you know, we're closing in on on when that would be now. The playback device they imagined is essentially a virtual reality device, not unlike the Oculus Rift. So, this incredible, far out, ridiculously, Futuristic scenario is based on technology that is actually here today. Now, will this approach work? We don't know. And he doesn't think they'll get it solved till 2025. Ray Kurzweil famously says 2049, 47, 49, in there is when this will start happening. I think it could be a little farther out. But what's so interesting to me is, once again, how it impacts culture. If you just think about this from kind of an issue of faith, all five of the world's big religions use the kind of threat or promise of the hereafter you're going to kind of steer morality and shape behavior in this world. So what happens to kind of theological morality in the face of technological immortality? It sounds like an absolutely ridiculous question, but if you're just kind of looking at the rate these things are moving, somebody's gonna to have to answer that question seriously in the next century.
0: Definitely. No, just the the fact that we will be living theoretically forever, either in silicon or a new 3D printed body because the the genetic stuff you're talking about is insane. Well, let's, you know, you don't even have to get so fancy on it. Like, here's the crazy
4: part, life extension technology and biomedicine and medicine and even sanitation. These things are moving so quickly that every day you gain five hours of life expectancy without exercise.
0: Nice. Good.
4: Every day. Now, back to Stephen
1: Cutler. See that? I don't need to exercise anymore. I'm, I'm, my life extension is happening automatically.
4: Pretty crazy, right?
1: Yeah, that's ridiculous. And and that's, of course, not me particularly growing that much longer. Simply technology's evolving fast enough to, to do that. This is like some Skynet stuff going on here, for sure. And I, I think the mind uploading stuff, it sounds really cool and fascinating, but my, my thought is, the With that, you have to figure out a way to go through 100 years of someone's life and find the useful stuff, not just having a VHS tape of everything they've ever done, 99%
4: of which is completely irrelevant to the rest of humanity. Okay, so let me back into that, because the idea here, and I didn't cover it, is that when they were developing this, what they wanted to do is they wanted to preserve genius. Right? The idea is, hey, you got a guy like Albert Einstein and Richard Feynman, once they die, we lose the way they think we lose their consciousness and both guys were capable of incredible intuitive leaps. So if you could get inside their head and see how they actually thought up these things, right, you might be able to learn their intuition in a sense. Here's what I think about that. When they asked the guy who invented television what he thought it was gonna be used for, all he could think of was education. Nailed it. I I think we're (laughs) looking at the same thing here, Yeah. right? Like it's being developed for education no way that's where it's going to stay
0: no I, I i'm thinking i can download jordan's brain and watch that simpsons episode that i missed that i know he watched <laughs>
1: right i mean imagine if they're looking for perpetrators of of a crime or some sort of historical reenactment of an event you can take people that didn't even know what they were seeing and you can say well this person was in that city at around that time let's see if they saw this plane crash or this
4: event or this or even this historical moment that the way this goes so sideways if you really are interested there's a guy named richard k morgan he's a science fiction writer kind of like a late model cyberpunk wrote a book called altered carbon which is his first one in a series of five or six that really looks at what happens two, 300 years from now if mind uploading becomes possible let's just say his version of the future is the darkest thing i've ever seen Basically, everybody's eyes are being hijacked by the authorities. No, it's armies of people whose, you have the consciousness of a soldier and their bodies become expendable because you can regrow bodies over and over and over. Oh, wow. So it gets horrifyingly militaristic and really peculiar really, really fast. And his version of the future is very dark. Yikes,
1: yeah. I mean, the idea of being able to regrow body parts or bodies is great, but once you start viewing... Humanity is completely expendable. Although, I, I don't know, how, how do you feel about this, Jason? I feel like if I were old and, or even now, if someone was like, hey, man, you know, you're looking pretty rough. Your legs have sat a lot. You know, you've got a little extra midsection going on and some of your hair's starting to gray. Do you want a 19-year-old body? Well, just pop your mind in there. I don't know if I'd be like, no. I think if it was pretty standard procedure and low risk, like LASIK, I would just say, sure, yeah, why not? Here's a few grand or whatever it costs. I'm sure it'll be more pricier than that. But like anything, it'll become affordable in no time.
0: Well, I think one of the chapters in in Stephen's book here is the world's first genetically engineered creatures. So what I would prefer is a new type of human that is not as frail and maybe has, you know, teeth like, you know, like a T Rex that you could download me into. I think that might be a little more fun. I'm pretty sure they would never
1: trust you with that. I hope they wouldn't. But how about a body that doesn't need to sleep or go to the bathroom? That would be a huge waste of time or or just goes once a day and sleeps for five minutes. That would be great. I'd get so much done. But I feel like that's not totally impossible, especially if you start limiting the functionality of the body to just the things that you really are good at, right? Like, look at Stephen Hawking. His body needs to survive, and I'm sure he'd have want a little bit mobility, but I don't think he needs to be a professional athlete or anything to do what he's best at as much as we have different body types now that are suited to different things, you might actually be able to choose what that is instead of just kind of getting stuck with it by virtue of that's your genetic
4: makeup. Does that make sense? Is that in line with your research, Stephen? That's an interesting idea. I actually had not thought of it. I mean, this is covered kind of from both ends in, uh, in Tomorrowland, you know, on the end, you guys just brought up, which is we looked at the, I look at, you know, kind of the world's first genetically engineered organism, right? which is a mosquito to fight uh, malaria and dengue. It can't transmit disease and it's already, you know, being introduced into the wild. So this is the first kind of creature birthed entirely in somebody's imagination that is taking up resonance in reality. So that's one end. The other end is if you kind of look at what's going on in reproductive technologies, more and more, we're taking control of our genome. And right, this is, I I look at the future of evolution in Tomorrowland as well, and this is, you know, the big picture thing, and it's not just me saying that a lot of people have kind of come out and said, hey, over the next 20 to 25 years, we're gonna totally take control of our genome. And I don't know, the T-Rex teeth thing is interesting, because I have argued for a really long time, and I think that usually what tends to drive a lot of this stuff forward, even though people don't look at it, is subculture, right? And every subculture that comes along has this need to outdo the previous generation. So, you know, hippies had long hair and colorful clothing that gave way into kind of punk rock piercings that gave way into body modifications and tattoos that is now giving way into biohacking, right? People are implanting real life electronic devices into their bodies at this point. It's going to give way to people with cat eyes and There was a story in Harper's a bunch of years ago about a guy trying to grow real life eagle wings out of his shoulder. You know, so there's a whole, there's a punk rock ethic there that I think will carry this forward to to your point. On a different level, you know, we are, in in terms of taking control of our genome, people think this is going to turn us into some kind of like huge Gattaca race of super children, right? But the truth of the matter is, if you talk to the experts, everybody's, pretty clear that, yeah, we're going to fracture the species, we're taking control of our genome, but it's what the children reproduce are going to be as endlessly creative in variety as there are people on this planet, because people are endlessly creative. So I think your idea about custom-specific bodies or custom-specific things, I can see, you know, I can see that emerging
0: cuz yeah I grew up with uh, Bruce Sterling's Shaper Mechanist series and you know I think about like how the the human race fractured into the people who were trying to get genetically better and the other side of the the human race that was trying to get better through mechanics and it seems like you cover both of that in your book it, it you know it's it's a little bit longer out but it's it's really interesting to see how these different things are starting to come actually to fruition now as the technology is growing Listen, people don't realize also that like, you
4: know, what they call techno physio evolution, and that's uh, uh Nobel laureate, Robert Fogel's term. And he was the first person to notice it, you know, over the past 200 years, we have taken control of so much of our evolution that, you know, our body mass has doubled. Our internal organs are incredibly more robust than they used to be. Longevity has quadrupled. These are evolutionary processes. Like we're already doing this, that Five hours of life expectancy you gain every day. That's an evolutionary hack, right? We are starting to insert ourselves into the equation at a really fundamental, deep level.
1: Are there obvious problems that can go wrong with this? Because I feel like whenever people attack things like genetic engineering and stuff, it's mostly done from kind of a, but it's not natural. But then these are the same people who go and get tons of tattoos and like,
4: you know, laser eye surgery. Well, so let me, let's talk about genetic engineering for half a second. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to make two points. One, from a practical point of view, you actually have a choice. You can either have genetically modified food and genetic engineering and things like that, or you can stop having children. It's an either or. People want to fight against, you know, GMO crops and all that stuff. It's unnatural. It's blah, blah, blah. Great. Stop having children. If we're going to keep having kids. We don't get to throw this technology out. It's really honest to God, it's that simple. Because there won't be enough food. There won't be enough food, and this fantastic technology. Here's the other thing that most people don't know. I can take an organic tomato seed. I can put it at the bottom of a nuclear reactor. I can bombard it with radiation to mutate it randomly. I can then take it out of the reactor and grow it, and sell you the tomatoes that result, and they are organic. If I do the process in a laboratory with precision so I know what I'm changing and what I'm not changing, it's genetically modified. Are you kidding? <laughs> like, I mean, really? Like, are you honest to God, are you kidding? It's totally backwards and most people don't get that. They don't understand what is actually organic, what is not organic, like what we're talking about here is, is first the third problem.
1: Right. And, and so, and what people are saying right now in their head is, yeah, but my tomato seeds aren't in a big nuclear reactor getting bombarded and mutating, but they are. Every time something's exposed just to the elements in general, especially solar radiation, which everything that's ever been outside ever is exposed to, it's getting that, it's just at a very small level and it's it's not done with precision like you said. It's the equivalent of throwing it into a microwave for a, a half second and then it comes out and the planet, and you would eat that tomato because it
4: What's the difference? It's literally like, like it's intelligent design, literally. <laughs> right, but provable because I can show you video footage of me designing it, right? Yeah, I mean that's why, you know, it's the real intelligent design. <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how non-scientific people are pushing back against this. Like, you talk about the the stem cell fight and the politics that surround that. Can Can we get into that a little bit? Well, so the bigger picture on that, right,
4: is, Besides all the technology, right, that we're talking about in the book in in Tomorrowland, the two things that I'm also looking at is, like, first of all, who are the people who are inventing the future, right? Because they're all maverick outsiders as a general rule. None of these people came out of the mainstream, which tells you something very interesting about innovation. Also, the second half of that is the book, especially in terms of life extension technologies and stem cells, I give you a historical overview of the fight. Because that's the other thing. Even with like science and technology, it's like history, right? We remember the victors. We very rarely remember the war. The invention of the future is a war. And I mean, make no mistake, right? And you'd have to look no farther than stem cells to see that playing out. It does get really crazy. And the interesting thing is, you know, I'm looking close up at issues that were on the table in the late 90s. All of those same issues are still on the table. They still haven't been resolved, right? The technology is accelerating exponentially. We're growing teeth, but our arguments are still 10 years behind. And, it, you know, on a certain level, if there's a big kind of moral to the book, one of them is that like you can't get out of the way of the future, good or bad, it's coming for you. And if we don't start massively upgrading our lives and our systems and our organizations, we're going to be in a lot of trouble, right? like it there's not there's not it's not slowing down
1: yeah it's certainly not slowing down because we don't want it to speed up or to continue i mean we can't really resist that
4: well like you know that's the other thing people are really fancy about why you can't turn off technology why you can't put the genie back in the bottle you know kevin kelly who founded wired uh who, had, who i think is brilliant wrote a great book called what technology wants and he, his argument is basically look technology is Another form of life and it's got its own wants, needs, and desires, and it procreates on its own. We can't. And he has a very good point, but I don't think we have to go nearly that deep. I always think of technology as the promise of an easier tomorrow. It's very rarely an, actually an easier tomorrow, right? Your life is far busier and more complicated today than it was before you had an email and a cell phone and all that, right? It's harder, but it was the illusion of an easier tomorrow that made you download all those apps, right? Technology is nothing more or less than the promise of hope. And you can't stop hope.
0: Awesome. That's, yeah, I tell you what, though. what would make life easier for me tomorrow is if I could just go into the back room and 3D print me a set of new teeth. Uh, I'd be down for that. That's always been my, my hope for the future of all of this stuff, is I'm like, I want to be able to take a pill and get some new teeth.
4: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, the teeth pill. I don't think that's all that far out, actually. You know, there's a lot of different things to want that may be a a reasonable thing to want.
1: All right, back to Stephen Kotler. I have a question for you in terms of us being able to genetically modify the food, to be able to grow body parts, to be able to upload our mind. If we're able to upload our mind, do you think we'll be able to then download things to people? Like say you have a kid, who had a really traumatic upbringing, crappy parents, you know, they died in some sort of tragic accident, you think that you might be able to go, you know what, let's give you a happy home. Let's give you a childhood in which you had plenty of parents caring for you. Let's impart a skill set. Uh, I guess it's how it sounds like the matrix, actually. But do you think we would
4: actually be able to impart things like that? Just let me give you a look at where we are today with stuff that's a little mind-blowing. And this is research done by a team that we partnered with at the Plow Genome Project. It's done by Advanced Brain Monitoring, and they work with EEG. They teamed up with the Navy and a group. Of, so with submariners, you're going to take a bunch of guys, you're going to put them together six months at a time, and they're going to have to live in close quarters. They're going to have to function as a team, and how they work you know, as a team is critical, right? And the Navy has this problem, which is they can't figure out if a team's good until they put them together and send them to sea for six months, and then you've already got problems, right? So by measuring – by specific kind of EEG work, within two days of trial simulations with the submariners, they could determine with an incredibly high degree of accuracy who on this submarine crew was going to form a perfect team, who were the bad apples that they had to weed out and who were the guys who they had to train up in terms of skills. That's where we are today. So we can basically see into the future, six months into the future, team building through kind of precognition using EEG. That's today. As far as crazy mind-downloading matrix learning or overwriting memories, all those kinds of questions, the matrix learning stuff, there was a team out of Boston that actually took it a step forward A couple years ago, it was a very small scale something and it wasn't like, I know kung fu, but they actually did manage to impart a skill. Can't remember more about the experiment. As far as overriding memories and things like that, we're, you know, we're starting to, there's a lot of different ways to kind of poke at that. And it's not unreasonable in the future to say that we're going to do that. And if you want to talk about things that scare me, that scares me. Why does that scare you? When I can go manchuring candidate on you in a race of years of your life. Oh, yeah. That's started to cross all kinds of lines that even even worry me.
0: Yeah. Little total recall action on that. Exactly. What are you most hopeful for out of all this this new technology that's coming out? What are you looking at the most as the most exciting? And what do you think the audience should be like paying attention to as the newest stuff that's coming out that will affect their lives? So let me frame this a little bit. One of the things we've been
4: hearing a lot about lately is, holy crap, robots and AIs, artificial intelligences are going to take my jobs. And if you Oxford had a report that says, hey, 45% of all American jobs are vulnerable to replacement by robotics and AI over the next 25 years. Right. And that does look to be the case. So the big question right now is where are the new jobs going to come from? The thing that I'm paying the most attention to right now is virtual reality and three reasons. One. I think there's an internet-sized opportunity sitting inside of virtual reality. And I say that because every information technology we've seen so far, whether we're talking computers or iPhones or apps or whatever, or the internet itself, there's been huge, massive, emergent opportunity that we did not see coming inside of it, right? Much, much bigger than we ever expected. Um, and we expected a lot from the internet, by the way, when it first showed up, right? But much bigger than we ever expected. And the other thing I was going to say about this is we already know back in the 90s, the first person uh, in history made a million dollars inside a Second Life. So Second Life is probably the first semi-virtual world. And we already learned, I think it was 1996, there's economies inside of these places,
1: yeah, China's kind of on the cutting edge of that, right? With the people who just work in sweatshops earning money to get like a sword for some game that they then sell.
4: Well, yes, and yeah, absolutely. We're seeing we're seeing, you know, gamers in Asia who don't want to leave the game. We're seeing this already. The second thing that's happening that is really interesting about virtual reality is it's a distributed educational platform, totally customizable to individual learners, completely distributed, deep immersive learning and You can actually, in virtual worlds, you can produce flow very easily. You can do it in video games, but it's usually sort of a low grade dopamine feedback loop, Mm -hmm. but still it makes video games 96% addictive. So flow, which we know from the research that DARPA did, you know, accelerates learning 250 to 500%, right? If you can create a flow based learning video game, you've got totally addictive learning, right? Because you've got all five of these really addictive neurochemicals feel-good neurochemicals flowing through your system, totally addictive, totally distributed, because it's in a virtual world. Anybody can log in from wherever. All you need is your Oculus Rift or whatever, and it can be individually customizable. So not only can we make money in there, it solves big educational problems. So there's a reason to move it forward as well. Simultaneously, what I just said about flow, we can, virtual worlds can become very, very, very addictive and not just addictive. When we talk about these feel good neurochemicals, flow isn't just the best I can feel on the planet. It's also the most meaningful purpose-driven state. So you're talking about not just these dopamine reward loops where you turn off doom and you sort of like, it was a great high while you were in the game, but afterwards you feel a little nauseous because it's not very meaningful. Suddenly it's addictive and meaningful. And this stuff is coming right now. I mean, we're looking at it. All the technology is showing up. So over the next three to five years, we're going to have a really solid technology, both virtual reality and augmented cognition. So those are the things I'm looking at right now. I think that's the most exciting. And I also, you know, as from an entrepreneurial perspective, it's one of the things that I think is most interesting.
0: So that actually, going from sci-fi, what you just talked about reminded me of the Runcible book from Neal Stephenson's Diamond Age. So what you're saying is he's moving that from an individualized learning platform into virtual reality, and then that's the next big thing. I think that's pretty cool. I think we will end up with Neal
4: Stephenson's book, and we talked about, Peter and I discussed that in abundance, right? And how AI is going to enable that, and I think we'll see it. I just think we'll do it in virtual reality with live interaction with like avatar teachers and things along those lines, because it's better learning.
1: Awesome, this is great. Is there anything you wanna leave us with that we haven't asked you that you're like, I
4: can't believe they didn't talk about this yet? Well, you know, I wanna leave everybody with something very practical, because these are very highfalutin ideas and they're cool and they're they're great to think about, but this is the really interesting thing, kind of just as an entrepreneurial level, which is a lot of these technologies are starting to develop user-friendly interfaces. The reason this is a big deal is it allows everybody to play. So think about the internet, right? It was invented in the 70s, and the first 20 years it was around, it was only used by computer scientists and by the military because you essentially had to be a computer scientist to play on it, right? In 1993, Mark Andreessen comes along, and he creates Mosaic, the very first web browser. It becomes the Netscape web browser. It's the first user-friendly interface for the internet that you can build businesses on. As a result, 1993, before he builds the thing, I think there are 20 – I think it's 27 websites online. within. Three years, it's tens of millions, right? It's exponential growth. And you didn't have to be a technologist, a computer programmer to build a business on the internet. So these kind of user-friendly interfaces are showing up all over the place. For example, 3D printing, right? We've been talking about, print me some 3D with some teeth. Today, a child can print in 3D. If you can point and click a mouse, you can print in 3D. So anybody can build businesses on the backs of 3D printing. 3D printing is a $10 trillion manufacturing revolution waiting to happen, right? We know there's $10 trillion worth of opportunity inside the 3D printing world because that's the size of the manufacturing industry. It's going to replace. So right there, robotics is getting user-friendly interfaces. There's a cool new robot out called Baxter, giant nine-foot wingspan humanoid robot. Baxter is the first user-friendly robot with a user-friendly interface. And what I mean by that is five years ago, if you wanted to hang out with an industrial robot, it didn't work. They cordoned these things off behind bulletproof glass because an errant arm could take off your head. Right. Sensors are advancing exponentially. So Baxter's coded with all these next-generation sensors, right? minute Baxter feels anything solid, he stops. What this means is Baxter is the first robot humans can actually cooperate with in the real world, we can work with Baxter. Baxter is also $22,000. Anybody can basically, who's building a business, can have a Baxter, and a couple months ago, blueprints for free for how to 3D print a scaled down version of Baxter showed up online. So now if you've got a 3D printer, you can print a mini Baxter, I think, essentially, for free. That's pretty rad. If you want to program Baxter, you just move his arms. You don't need... Unix, you don't need to speak computer code. You move his arms, he's programmed, right? User-friendly interface for robotics. Anybody can start building businesses on the backs of this robot. You don't need to be a computer scientist to do it. So these kinds, synthetic biology, which is the crazy one, right? Synthetic biology allows us to program life, to program DNA code and create life from scratch. It's the craziest technology out there. And yet right now we're working on DNA typewriters, essentially user-friendly interfaces, for synthetic biology, so anybody can program life from scratch. That's kind of terrifying, but cool as hell at the same time. It's terrifying, but like, you know, from a personal entrepreneurial perspective, this stuff is really exploding, and it's open to anybody. If you're curious, you don't even want to build a business, if you're curious about these technologies, there are ways in for almost anybody today. That's the really crazy part.
1: Excellent, thank you so much. Jason, you got anything else? I, I'm. I'm thinking about, you know,
0: the, the bio printers. I'm just thinking what could go wrong.
1: Right. Exactly. It'll, well, next time they have the big Lebowski, they'll just be like, I could print you a toe by 3 PM with nail polish. Thanks so much, Stephen. Much appreciated. Uh, and we'll of course link to Tomorrowland and your books in the show notes. I really appreciate your time. I know we jumped around a lot, but we basically wanted to get a, a sample of what you talk about in the book so that people can, uh, engage their fascination and then check it out for themselves.
4: I thought that was really fun. Thanks,
1: guys. Thank you. So much interesting stuff there. Again, kind of all over the place. Not our typical fair, but I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you all, so... You've got your finger on the pause. I need my finger on the pulse via you guys. If you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Steven on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes and other resources including the book, of course, mentioned on the show. I'm also on Twitter. I engage frequently there. It's better to reach me there. Generally, it's a lot quicker as well. I'm at the Charm, and I post a lot of stuff there that'll never make it to the show. Bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Now remember, we're sold out a few months in advance. So If you're thinking about it a little bit, you can get in touch ASAP, get some info, plan ahead, make it happen. And on the website, of course, is our blog as well for people that uh, just can't get enough AOC, and you can engage with us there too. Review us on iTunes, check us out on anything, and give us a nice five-star review and write something. Helps us stand out from the riffraff and helps us get ahead of the game. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Now tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.
0: Thanks for listening to
2: The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.